Grab your copy of God's Word or Bible close to you and turn to John 17. This is the location and the scripture that we'll be in for the next three weeks. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to look at what most Bibles title the High Priestly Prayer. And uh, there have been many comments, many books written on this prayer, and, and there's a few worth noting, uh, some comments. One from the Scottish reformer John Knox he says in regards to the 17th chapter of the Gospel by John, is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Some very lofty words there. Martin Luther, the reformer, says, this is truly, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, it's so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. This is very much a very beautiful prayer, a very beautiful chapter, and I think in way of introduction it would do us and serve us well to read the whole chapter this morning. So would you begin looking with me at verse 1? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, this, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, 
are in me and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved, have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is a very rich passage of scripture. The Gospel of John is, is a very unique gospel. When we look at the four gospels that are so familiar to us, we notice there's a, a very stark difference in the way John orders and records the life and ministry of Jesus. John has a purpose of demonstrating and putting Jesus before his audience so that it's clear who he is. And he states this very clearly in John 20 at the end. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John desires for his readers to walk away without a doubt in their heart that this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, has life. And those that would respond in faith and repentance can have that life, and it can be abundant and wonderful. And that's what he's longing to present before his audience. But there's many other things that I think are important for us to consider the mood of this passage. We're jumping into a book, but we're also jumping in at the end of a book. And there's been so much that has happened already at this time. One of the differences between the other three Gospels and John, the other three Gospels spend a short amount of time looking at the upper room, that last supper, that last meal with his disciples. But beginning in John chapter 13, all the way through 17, we have what was uh, called the farewell Discourse in verses four or chapters 14 and 16. Chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet. Uh, he, he goes and, and enlightens them that one of them will betray them and they will all abandon him. He knows in just the matter of hours that he will be betrayed, arrested, and come into contact with the most uh, disturbing thing his life will ever encounter, which is the separation separation from his father, the wrath for sin and punishment. All that is pressing upon the heart of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the prayer in the garden. John records the prayer in the room. This prayer is no doubt probably one of the most important prayers that we have. He's just said some of the most important things that he's ever told his disciples in 14 through 16. Looking at them and now turning his eyes to the Lord. It's in this prayer that we'll look at three different parts today, verses 1 through 5, as Jesus prays for himself. Next week we'll look at verses 9 
through or 6 through 19, where he prays for his disciples, and then 20 through 26, where he prays for his church. Here his case is before the Lord. He says that the Father should glorify him. That's what I've entitled this message, The Glory of Christ. And we'll look at his hour, his glory, his gift, and his work. So Christ's hour, in verse 1, says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus is a wonderful example for you and me. I mean, over and over again, we see, especially in the Gospel of Luke, they want you to see that Jesus is constantly going to his Father in prayer. So Jesus is our ultimate example in how we are to live, and he is constantly stopping at pivotal points in his life and going to his Father in prayer. As he decides who his disciples will be, and as he's about to appoint them, we see he escapes to go to his Father in prayer. Right now, before he's about to be handed over and betrayed and killed, he goes to his Father in prayer. Jesus is a wonderful example, even in the Gospel of John, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he said, the scripture says, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. They had a very personal and intimate relationship. In chapter 12, he says, Father, glorify your name. It says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What a wonderful example we have in Christ in his prayer life. In Matthew chapter 6, he gives his disciples an outline in the model prayer, or the Lord's Prayer. In his example of when to pray, he gets away at all points during his life to go to pray. And now we see how, with what kind of heart, a true disciple of Christ comes to the Father in prayer. We see in this moment an example in Christ, in his prayer life. But it says, the hour has come. What is Christ's hour? This is actually something that we see all throughout the Gospel of John. If you would turn to chapter 7 with me, as you're turning to chapter 7, look, we're going to look at verses 25 through 31. But in John chapter 2, we actually find Christ's hour first. Jesus... At a wedding, his mother calls him to a situation that's just occurred. The wine has run out. She says, get with my son. He says, woman, what has this do to do to me? It's not my hour. The hour has not come. He has yet to reveal that he is the Christ, his Messiah. His ministry has yet to take in place. But here we see a little bit more in John chapter 7, verse 25 says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord, he who sent me is true, and in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But fast forward to chapter 13, things change. As Jesus is about to go into the upper room, as he's about to share his last meal with his disciples before his death, as he's about to teach them some of the sweetest things that he's taught them thus far, says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Very plainly stated, Jesus' hour is his time to come and die and go to the cross to bear the sins of his people, to go to the grave and be resurrected three days later. That is his hour, his time for his atonement. And it's come. It's good to know that God, before time, planned all the details out perfectly to the hour. The hour when the sun would come to this earth. The hour when his, the sun would begin his ministry. The hour when the sun would go and atone for the sins of his people. There are absolutely no mistakes, no delays. Absolute precision is played out in every part of the redemptive plan when the hour has come. It should bring hope to us. For the people of God, we should trust God's plans. We should trust God's timing. We've seen the example of his prayer. We see that Jesus, knowing what's before him, still does not just act in fatalism, that all will work out, but he goes to the Lord in prayer. What an example for you and me, that at the most pressing times of life is a wonderful time to go before the one that longs to hear from us. I say that because our catechism des, uh, de, defines prayer as offering up our heart's desire to God. He longs to hear from his people. We see this in the Son. Do you trust his plans? Do you trust his ways? In a very practical sense, your prayer life will reveal that. How do I know? When do I pray? Am I sure to go to the Lord in prayer? Now, not only was his life marked in pressing times going to the Lord in prayer, but it was his habit to go to the Lord in prayer. But he knew that his hour was here. His time had come. So now we go to his glory, Christ's glory. In John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Skipping down to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is really the theme of our passage. And actually, it's dispersed through the rest of the prayer. The glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. The glory of Christ is not a theme that's just here in John 17. Jesus Speaks about it in chapter 13. He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
The glory of God, the glory of Christ is of utmost importance and especially for the people of God to comprehend. And it's good for us to note something. In our passage, we have both the noun, glory, and the verb, glorify. I like how one um, author defined glory. He says, what is the glory of God? It is his splendor, his fame, his beauty. It's the revelation of what he is, all that he is, all his attributes together in perfect harmony. It is often compared to light and all its various refracted colors like the rainbow. It's his splendor. It's his fame. It's his beauty. The glory of God. To be glorified is the display, the celebration, the revealing of his beauty, his fame. And that is a beautiful thing for the people of God because that's what we've been called to do is to glorify the Son and the Father. Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 1, the hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So the question before us is, how is the Father and the Son both glorified? Ultimately in the cross of Christ. It's where we're about to approach the cross and death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That is where the ultimate glory is found for both the Father and the Son. And these verses that we're about to come upon says how we might ask ourselves, how will Jesus be glorified in the cross? How is Jesus glorified in this? How is the Father to glorify Jesus in the fact that he is the perfect sacrifice? That he is actually able to absorb the wrath and punishment and judgment for sins. That is how he is glorified. See, the cross for Christ was not shame, but it was actually honor for him. How was the Father glorified in the cross? Well, it displays so many of his wonderful attributes and characteristics. His faithfulness to his promise to provide a sacrifice, to provide a way. He's just and not looking past sin, but bringing judgment to sin. Applying the wrath, the punishment deserved. And loving and providing that payment in his son, Jesus Christ. In the cross, both the Father and the Son are both glorified. And this is best put down in Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Paul sums this up beautifully and does it in better words than I could ever put them in. The glory of both the Father and the Son in the cross of Christ. He's encouraging them at this point to have a mind that is the same, to be in unity, to love one another, to put one's needs aside and consider the interest and the needs of others more important. In verse 5, he begins with this. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross of Jesus Christ was the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory to the Father. And his last prayer that we have recorded here, this is an important topic. The one petition that Jesus has in this whole prayer for himself is for him to be glorified by the Father. The glory of Christ is important to the Lord and it should be important to us. The question is very simple. Do you glorify God? Do you bring glory to God? Do you display his beauty, his honor, his goodness? Is that evident in your life? In a very practical way, you might ask the question, how do I glorify God? In the boys and girls catechism, a very old catechism, Baptist catechism, the question is posed, how can I glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Love and obedience is very closely connected in the scripture. And we're told that through love and obedience to Jesus Christ, to his commandments, we are in turn glorifying him. What we're saying by our actions, by our thoughts, by our words, and the way we relate to one another, and in our families, and all around us, how we do our work, we're showing that there's more value in not just a paycheck, and not just the appearance that everything's okay, that there is one greater and more valuable than me, and that's God. I want my actions, my work, my words, my conversations. I want everything to be directed and taken off myself and directed and applied to Jesus Christ. That happens very practically through our obedience. Jesus says it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The believer must know the word of God Keep the word of God, enjoy the word of God, and allow the word of God to work in him. It should be very clear to the people around you that are outside of the faith that this person has a higher way of living and their purpose is not for their own kingdom, for their own name, for their own pleasure, but it's something greater and that is Jesus Christ. It's not just done by our actions, but we proclaim Christ. We were faithful to share that there is someone better than myself. There's someone more worth talking about than my own problems, than my own achievement, my own rewards, my own family. Look to Christ. The call is for us to glorify Christ. It was a concern. It meant much to Christ. It should mean much to the believer in Jesus Christ. As his disciples listening to this prayer as they can feel the tension of the night, knowing that something is about to happen. They're listening to the man that they love dearly. Ask for his glory to be revealed. 
it should be our heart's desire as well as disciples in Jesus Christ to see him glorified his glory his hour his glory his gift his gift I call it his gift because that's what Paul calls eternal life in Romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord his gift verses 2 and 3 since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The authority given to Jesus Christ. It's a very magnificent thing to think about, especially as you read through the gospel. It is clear that he has been given authority over all things. A man, it seems to be in a uh, just a normal man to those outside, but they're, they're struck by the way he talks, by the way he preaches, by the way he teaches, and then by his actions and what he does, intervening in the lives of the hopeless, calling the most unlikely disciples to himself, a tax collector, the lowly fisherman. It's beautiful to read the accounts of Jesus' authority on this earth and authority to give life and hope to the hopeless. One of my favorite demonstrations of this is, is in actually a stint where Mark is making very, very clearly that Jesus has ultimate authority. In Mark chapter 4, at the end, he has authority over a storm. And then in chapter 5, it begins with his authority over the demonic realm. And then continuing in chapter 5, his authority over sickness and death. But it's that middle one that I love. A man that, that Mark actually takes a great deal of time to describe his circumstances. He's obviously in the land of the Gentiles because pigs are around. This man actually is absolutely hopeless. We learn from the narrative in Mark chapter 5 that he is, uh, has many demons when Jesus confronts this man. We know from the background that he's been chained. The Greek words there used chain is not just some podunk just make do chain them up or tie them up but it was actually a blacksmith there was a trade there was there was great effort in trying to detain this individual in one place and that was the tombs a graveyard so the man's unclean because he has demons demons living within him the man's unclean because he's a gentile to the jews the man's unclean because he lives amongst the graves the dead absolutely hopeless at this point in his life says that he's, his days are spent cutting himself with rocks unclothed no hope encounters Jesus Christ commands the demons to go into a herd of pigs all for the sake of one soul to give one life again new life this time eternal life hope his response take me with you jesus says no stay tell how much the lord has done for you show his mercy and he did that he was faithful to tell the message christ has authority to make disciples and give something and that is eternal life eternal life it's a beautiful thing jesus records or, or tells his disciple a very 
familiar passage to most of us in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He has all authority. Are you sharing that gospel message, knowing that the one that's told you to go make disciples has the authority and the ability to give eternal life? It's actually a wonderful gift that he's given us, the way he has orchestrated and made it, where he calls people from darkness to light and then calls those that were in darkness to light to share about the light. And we're, our, our obligation is to just share. Our joy is to share because the work is done. We'll see that in a moment. The authority has been given. And that's eternal life. Do you share the gospel with that kind of confidence and boldness? Knowing that the message is sure to transform the most unlikely convert. The most broken individual, the most hard heart, he can restore, he can save and redeem, and he's done it time after time after time. All authority was given to him for the purpose of giving eternal life. This gift, eternal life, what is it? Often we think of heaven as that gift, and that's, that's part of it, but it's life that's eternal beginning now. And he explains it very clearly in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. No, not as in just facts, but it's a no that speaks of an intimate relationship. It's not like... The, the facts that we can give about the celebrities in our lives that we love to follow or the, the, the professional athletes that we know their story and can rattle off those facts. But it's, it's the intimate relationship. Like you know what really ticks off your wife. You know that, hey, this is going to not make her happy when she hears about this. It's like you knowing when you throw your socks on the counter or on the table that that's not going to be pleasing to her. You know the things that make her happy and the things that make her mad. You know her. You know when you hear a, a statement said by a friend and you know that once that gets back to her, oh, she ain't going to like that. Not one bit because you know her very intimately. And you love the things that they love. And this speaks to the fellowship, the, the intimate relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, with the true God. The true God. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. This is verse 9. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There is head knowledge here, but it's also very closely connected with the heart. It's knowledge of understanding there is no one, absolutely no one, that's worth being praised other than God himself, the true God. And understanding that true God sent Jesus Christ. Both man, both God. Not just to 
show us how to live, but to die in our place for our sins. To accomplish the work. To come to this hour that's at hand. This is what he's called us to do is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So I have to ask you, do you have eternal life? I hope you haven't downplayed your sin. It's a very serious thing. It's actually the biggest problem we have. Our sins, who we are naturally, offends the true God. Describes us as hostile enemies towards him. That undoing doesn't just naturally happen. Church attendance doesn't wipe that away. We must come to the understanding that my sin has offended a great and holy God. Come to the understanding that that sin deserves punishment. Same passage, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Not just the physical death, which we will all encounter, but death, eternal death, eternal punishment. Hell, a real place, a real thing, set, done for the one that has not instead looked to Jesus Christ. Instead looked to the true God, the one that's walking in right fellowship, that's loving him and intimately pleasing and bring glory to him. Eternal life, the gift. You understood that this is a wonderful gift, a gift that we shouldn't take for granted, believer. The same old message, the same old things, they're not old to us. They're sweet and new every day. Remembering my sin was a debt that I couldn't pay. Remembering the sacrifice, the work done was great and costly. Do you have eternal life? Lastly, his work. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do the work. This is Jesus' perfect obedience ultimately to the cross, but his life, his aim was the will of the God, will of God. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The story of the woman at the well, his disciples depart. For a while they come back. Verse 31 of John 4. says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to, him, said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Perfect obedience. 
Ultimately, this will be fulfilled in his completed work on the cross. But in every single way, he obeyed the Father perfectly. Whether it was obedience to his earthly family, to his parents, obedience and and the way that he taught and what he did, every single thing in thought and heart, he was perfectly pure and right. This is all necessary for him to be the perfect sacrifice without blemish, but he was perfect in all ways. He accomplished everything that he wanted perfectly. It was his desire. It was like we need food. That was his nourishment every single day to please his father. He lived every single day with that at the forefront to please his father. What a wonderful example for you and me every single day to please our father perfectly in every thought being sure to take it captive in every every word that we say every conversation that we have in the way we discipline our children or interact with our spouse and what we eat doing everything absolutely everything in a manner that is pleasing to him Christ did it perfectly, absolutely perfectly, and he accomplished it here in a moment. He is there already. His mind is set on going to the cross, absorbing the wrath and punishment. He is set on that. The work is done. John 19, he says, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit the work was necessary it was perfect and it provided eternal life i hope you've trusted in this work in our catechism and many other catechisms there's a question says what is the chief end of man Chief end of man. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the call of every single individual. Every single person, whether in Christ or out of Christ, has been called to bring glory to God and enjoy him. Sin, Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve, that has disrupted everything. Absolutely everything. And instead, the goal, the aim being God's glory, we put other targets up there. Like relationships. That's my goal. Money. That's my goal. Career. Recognition. That's my goal. Pleasures, whatever will make me happy in the moment, that's my goal. And the problem is, you can attest to it, whether in Christ or out of Christ, you can attest to it, if you're honest, this morning, it never is fulfilling. The pleasures we seek never give us ultimate delight. The goals that we put before us that never meet the promises that we hope for 
That's because there's one target, and that is the glory of God, and that is through enjoyment and obedience and love for him ultimately. Those in Jesus Christ, the way has been paved. You've been given eternal life. Your life is purposeful. You have meaning now, understanding your purpose and intent in this world. Yes, some of you are mothers and fathers. Yes, you have careers. But all those are, are, are opportunities to display Jesus Christ and his glory. The way has been paved. Those of you outside of Jesus Christ this morning, you know who you are. Life is meaningless. Everything that you were promised has not come true. This gift of eternal life is a plea for you. I'm pleading with you to understand you need Jesus Christ. You need the forgiveness of your sins. You need to understand that there is a God more loving than any man or woman. There is more contentment and joy and delight found in him and him alone in that relationship than anything else this world can offer. The call is to run to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He loves you and cares for you. How do I know? He laid down his life. He finished the work. The Father glorified him as he glorified the Father on the cross. Let us bring all glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful prayer. Father, we're only just skimming the outside of this. We're not able to really dive into this uh, passage the way that I would hope. But Father, I pray that our minds and hearts would be redirected this morning. Many of us have been living for the glory of another, often ourselves, often trying to display our goodness, our beauty, our splendor, our majesty, or even the others in our lives, other individuals, other people. So, Father, I pray that you would redirect our attention, our aim in life, to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. The prayer before the cross, he's concerned about his glory and yours. I pray that your people would do the same for the soul that is yet to know, yet to understand, yet to respond in faith and repentance. Father, we ask that you would bring them to yourself, that you would open their eyes to the great debt that needed to be paid and was paid in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that they would be called to eternal life and they'd understand that this morning. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.